Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership Series, I'm here with my good friend, David. And David Heron is the group CEO of Wilton & Bain, uh, which began as a, a small boutique uh, executive search firm and now is a global competitor with all the big boys. And um, great experience. It's got executive search, it's got interim, and it's got talent management options that they offer. Uh, I knew David before when we served together in Penna, um, and David was in working with a friend of mine, James, in the interim business uh, while I was doing the board and executive search or executive coaching uh, side. Um, but but a fascinating background uh, from Uppingham into rugby, and we're going to have a talk about that now. So, David, welcome. Great having you here. That's Jonathan. Um, let's talk first about in- inspiring leadership and who inspired you. I think you talked about um, family and then also rugby. So so tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so you know, I, I've I've <clears throat> I've always been inspired by um, people that have achieved things in 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 slight adversity, so yeah. sort of against the odds. Um, and I've always felt, having come from a relatively privileged background, private education, that I've been ahead of the odds. Um, and so a lot of the people that I find inspiring are ones that you know, perhaps haven't had the background that I have. So, you know, my father, um, you know, a big Leicester family, um, you know, um, not a lot of money, council flat upbringing, um, you know, uh, sets up a business, grows it, sells it, retires by the age of 37. Wow. Um, and you think, well, you know, how did that happen? And actually, you know, um, a lot of what I learned from him is that, you know, anyone can achieve anything, really. You just have to kind of put your mind to it. Um, and I think he he still now um, struggles with the fact that he was very, very successful, but his background's very humble. So if you look at his social existence, He's more happy talking to the guy who does the gardening than he is talking to some guy in a suit, yeah. uh, which is interesting given that. Um, so feet on the ground, I think, is very, very yeah. important. Yeah. And then sport. You know, I I, um, I grew up in the East Midlands at a time when, you know, um, rugby was very, very big. Well, rugby still is very, very big up there. It's just a lot less successful. Um, and um, and in the nineties, you know, I was lucky enough to watch some of the the greatest players that have played for you know probably England the British Lions and perhaps in the world. Um, and I was quite a good player. I, I ended up um, I ended up getting into the Leicester Tigers Academy and, and, and Colts with my with my great friend Jamie Lawson Brown from school. Um, and we uh, uh, you know I always remember driving into the ground and, and being surrounded by all of my idols. Um, and then it's suddenly dawning on me that this was this was kind of real, mm. um, and uh, you know now I was with the big guys. So so I'd all, I always I always their caption that they used to have as you drove in. 
Yes, yeah, so it was very, it was very, very clear. I, I can't remember whether it was on the on the on the gate that went up as you drove into Oval Park, the training ground, or wherever. But it, it seemed to be everywhere you looked was was this slogan: "We are Leicester Tigers, and winning is why we are here." Mm. And I must have seen that about nine times before I walked into the change room. So by the time I got to the change room, it was fairly unambiguous as to what the purpose of being there was. But you were with some really famous names. I mean, who who were the kind incredible of incredible guys? You know, Martin Johnson, um, Neil Back, Dean Richards. You know, guys who would have been entering the academy at a similar time to me Lewis Moody Jordan Murphy I mean these guys have gone on to captain their country play for the British Lions and win World Cups so you know you turn up from a from a from a you know a, a private school that was 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 a good rugby school with a manicured pitch that someone you know, ran around cutting with nail clippers every day to being in the mud bath that was Oval Park training with people who wanted to kill you so you know I remember running into was the it, first Brutal, you know. I mean, their, their, their training sessions—they were famed for for for, for scrapping. Well, what about that one when you ran at the? I, I, I think it was the first time I ran into contact, and you know, at, at Uppingham, I would get the ball and run into anyone, and they would go flying backwards. And um, and I ran into this tackle shield. You know, they hold these things, and I ran into it. And the guy, I think it was Lewis Deacon, lifted it up, who also went on to play for England, lifted it up and just kneed me in the head <laughs> and reminded me that I was a posh kid. And that stood, that stood for nothing there. So that, you know, that always... Um, you and know, that must have grounded you, really grounded you. Yeah, I mean, really grounded me. I'm nothing know. special. Um, I've, got a, I've got a, in my way, it's a meritocracy here. Yeah, they, they, they had no, you know, it was a very hierarchical place in that you knew, you knew who the senior people were. But in some ways, it was totally unhierarchical. You know, everyone trained together. They didn't care if you were 17 um, or you were 35. You know, if you, if you wanted to play for Leicester, you had to better play with everyone. Mm. So all of the drills were geared to togetherness and being as one. Someone made a mistake. Everyone made a mistake. Everyone's down doing press-ups. All right. And, and that was just, you know, and they had this thing called the hill, which, you know, I'm sure there'll be people who listen to this who will have been there. Everyone will remember the hill at Oval Park, which was just this bloody mud hill that seemed to go up forever. And, you, you you know, the drill was if anyone dropped the ball, you just ran to the bottom of the mud hill, paired up with whoever was next to you, and then you ran up and down it until someone was sick, which is quite... <laughs> <laughs> which is, I mean, this is 1997. Rugby's just got professional. The British Lions have just won in South Africa. Johnson's just come back. Dean Richards is just retiring. You know, it's pretty iconic time for... Mm. You know, I mean, arguably, the... Well, it, actually, definitely now, given the scandal at Saracens over the last few months, the most successful... Um, English club rugby team or European club rugby team potentially ever ever to play. So for the uninitiated who are listening, the scandal at Saracens, that was a lovely throwaway line. What, so the scandal at Saracens, is, I would have argued two, three weeks ago that Saracens were 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 uh, at least on a par with Leicester, but it turns out they've been breaching the salary cap and paying their players too much. So I'm a little bit torn on that because in many ways, you, you know, you would, you would say that is cheating. But yeah. in other ways... Um, they've actually built a brilliant academy and created some great people and been brilliant for English rugby. So uh, I'm slightly pleased because it means I can still say Leicester are the most successful. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. in the time we've got, um, learning from mistakes, people are always interested in, in, in how you learned from the things you got wrong. What, what did you learn from mistakes you made? Yeah, I'm not sure I always had great self-awareness. I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that when you're young and trying to find your way in the world, you do have self-awareness. Really, you, someone like me, it was all about force of personality. You know, yeah. be louder, push harder, 
um, you know, kind of bludgeon your opponents in any situation. And as I've grown, I'm not sure I can think of any isolated mistakes, but I can think of lots of episodes yeah. where that's been the case, where, you know, I've been very self-serving to my own personal agenda. And I think as, as you become a leader and you become responsible for others, you kind of just learn that that sort of dictatorship isn't going to work. Yeah. So dictating to yourself is kind of one thing, yeah. but dictating or preaching to others, I think, is, is, is entirely yeah. different, really. Very, very insightful. Uh, and I've seen in you, um, even in the, the few years since we've known each other, a much more sort of coach approach to leadership when, when I've been with you and the team. You've actually remained quiet for a lot of the time, really, really listened and then captured a few of the points, and I, I certainly like that style. So, so what would you what would you give the the listeners as your sort of top tip for them to take away today that you've learned about leadership that you you'd share with them? Well, you have to be focused. You know, you have to absolutely know what you're trying to achieve, but you have to be open minded. You have to realise there are a number of different ways to get there, mm. um, and you know the the. Um, you know, every plan will go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and so it doesn't mean the ultimate destination ever changes. It just means you've got to reroute yourself every now and again. Mm. So I think what I've learned is be open-minded, never ignore, uh, no idea is a bad idea. Um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, respect everyone, um, encourage uh, involvement and interaction. Um, and, um, you know, if you want to build a high-performing team, you know, everyone's got a role to play. Yeah, great. David, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Congratulations on a very successful business in Wilson Bain. And I'm sure you'll continue to go from strength to strength. So thank you, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to the Inspiring Leadership series, the extra session where David Heron and I are going to be chatting about leadership in general. David, we were chatting earlier in your experience about rugby. Mm. And I said to you, you know, why didn't you go into the military? And you said... Yeah, I said, well, you have, a, you know, you kind of had a choice, you know, do I want to play rugby or do I want to go into the army? But the, the first thing was I found rolling around in the mud good fun. So, you know, there were lots <laughs> of similarities between the two, but I guess I was better with a ball than a gun. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, lots of, lots of similarities and actually a lot of the inspiration I take now. I mean, you know, I do a lot of reading. A lot of the reading I do is not from people who have been business leaders. It's people who have been leaders in the military or leaders in sport. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> for me, they're the ultimate team games. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you really are a team player. And lately, uh, I mean, you've had in the past some appalling examples of leadership. So before we talk about really inspiring leadership, let's talk about expiring leadership. You know, the, the misleaders, the, the just inadequate people. What, what were the sort of themes and stories that you have? We obviously don't want to name any guilty people because it would embarrass them. But <laughs> no, I think... <laughs> what, what would you see in poor leadership? It's almost... It, it's almost always the same. You know, for me, it's it's the schizophrenia between um, lack of consistency over the message. You know, and I can I can empathise with why that happens. You know, businesses go through good times and they go through bad times. But in a sporting context or in a military context, you've got you've got to keep your eyes on the prize, right? It's it's less about um, you know winning the fight and more about winning the war. 
Yeah. You know, it's less about winning each match. It's more about winning the trophy. And I don't think that, I don't think a lot of business leaders have that. They're not able to take themselves out of the short-term day-to-day and keep their eye on what the the strategic kind of objective of tomorrow is. So most of the examples I can think of are are people that give you a directive and then three weeks later just do a U-turn on that directive to give you another one. It's very, very hard to follow those people. And then you lose trust. You just think this guy doesn't know what they're doing. You know, they're out of control there. And and also what you then start to question is, are they... Do they have a relationship with the person they work for? How are they managing that? I mean, if they can't be clear to me, how are they being clear? Mm. Are they just a puppet? Are they just being told what to do? Yeah. So I think I've always tried to stay very, actually, ironically, as an individual, you know, in my world, which is recruitment, you know, most people create success through their ability to look after themselves. Yeah, it can be quite a solo business, can't it? You you saw some gladiators, you know, made a lot of money for themselves and their bonus and things like that. Uh, regardless of the fact they were surrounded by some pretty poor performers. Yeah. But but how did you move from that to now what you've got is actually a really well-led, and you've got a strong team. You created mm. almost like a rugby team within Wilton and Bain, you know, mm. your leadership. So tell me, how do you do that? Uh, that's sort of in my DNA, really. It's how I've yeah. always been brought up. You know, I was chucked into a boarding school at the age of seven. I was in a, you know, um, most of which was pretty unpleasant, but, you know, you yeah. get on with it. So we're called um, boarding school survivors. Uh, so that's, there's a book that's good. by that's good. Um, The Making of Them yeah. by uh, Nick Duffel. Uh, and, and actually a lot of people who went into boarding schools are pretty psychologically messed up. Oh, uh, many of them are sort of CEOs of businesses now. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's, not, it's not always Proud to use. put myself in that camp. Yeah, and, and <laughs> if you can survive that, you'll survive anything. Uh, there was a Frenchman who said to me, you English, I don't understand you. you. You must hate your children. You send them to prison. What, what have they done wrong? You know, and, and I was sent at six and you were sent at seven. And look, we're completely messed up. <laughs> look, you know, I mean, I, I love it, right? And, um, you know, I went to school at seven, um, uh, way to school at seven, uh, went to Uppingham when I was 13. You know, I've got 17 godchildren, all of whom are the children of people I was at school with. And so that kind of environment, you know, that 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 is an all-for-one, one-for-all kind of environment. I mean, it, 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 you know, boarding school can be brutal. You know, if you're not... If you're not um, then loud, sporty, yeah. um, you know it, it's hard to thrive. But I think I think that education has diversified a lot now, and I think that I look at the schools that my children go to and the way that they encourage every single person to thrive in whatever yeah. they do. Yeah. I'm not sure that was true when we were at school. No, no, it was it was uh, dysfunctional in many ways. Teaching, totally. it, it's my own daughter Harriet. She's a teacher, uh, and the the quality of teaching, and you know, she went to Bristol, got a first class degree, and then retrain having been in business she then retrained as a teacher uh, and the standards are very high mm. very high but also i think the world's changed right you know the things that um but but the re- the answering your question how have we created i mean a lot of it's come from thinking about you know if you think about the boarding house system you know every boarding house wants to win this cup or they want to win that cup or they mm. whatever whatever mm. But they all want Uppingham to be successful. They all want the end goal for the school to win. Yeah. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I think what I learned, and it was the same at Leicester, it didn't matter whether you were in the youth team or you were in the first team. You wanted each of the teams to win. But the collective goal was we want to, we want to win the league. We want to win the Heineken Cup. <clears throat> and business doesn't work like that. You know, business is very siloed. So, you know, most organisations, and we're in a privileged role where I talk to tens of businesses, you know, a month. Mm. hundreds a year and meet people from all sorts of different organizations and I'm always staggered as to how siloed businesses are and how 
you know, there aren't that many high-performing teams. There are a lot of high-performing individuals. Yes. High-performing teams are difficult to crack. And this is something that um, was an interesting one, uh, talking to Richard Fenning, the CEO of uh, Control Risks. Mm -hmm. uh, He's been on the series. And Richard was saying it, it is sadly in the West the cult of ego of the mm. this this one great man often male because it's the balance is wrong it's not enough uh, female leaders but but they're expecting this one person to produce all the goodies and they give them like look at lloyd's with you know um Hortosario and oh he's had a pay cut of 238,000 wow well when he's paid mm. millions you know that's not very much mm. um but they're expecting one man or one woman to make all the difference, but it, it can't be that. It's uh, it's too complex. It's too big these days. Even your firm, Wilton Bain, is there's much complexity to it. And you're in America, and you're you know in the UK, and all the different places. And it can't be an individual. It has to be a team, doesn't it? It has to be a team. You know, and I, you know, if I look at the um, the structure we've tried to build, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that you know two or three, three or four of the people that work for me now, people that I picked. Yeah, you know, and I can see, you know, I said to my wife the other day, I can so see why managers go into football clubs and they get rid of all. They they want their own team, they want their own squad, they want people to get a fight for them. That's a really good um, point because I've seen time and again leaders come in and what that man or woman has inherited, they don't, they can't resonate with the person who's there, or one of the team who's there think they should have been the boss. Yeah, and they resent this new person coming in. And I rarely see it work where the person who resents that they didn't get the job will then work well for the person who comes in. They, they normally have to go. It just doesn't tend yeah, to work. I, I mean, I, I see this in our business and I see this a lot, but I, I, you know, I think if I think from my own perspective of taking in, you know, five of us were part of a management buyout um, of our two founding partners and one of us became the CEO, right? So five equals and one gets the job that's got the chief in front of it so that that's you know that for me was and i never saw, never saw it like that i just saw that i was given the i was given the the enormous responsibility of looking after all of our investments i never saw it mm-hmm. as well, look at me i was better than the other four in any way shape or form and still now i see those guys as peers and friends not as subordinates but that's quite rare and i think it's a credit to you and it is interesting also so I don't often see that happen I I see individuals be very um, jealous and comparative relative deprivation where they compare themselves to others and and it it isn't healthy but one of the things I'm impressed that you've achieved because I've seen so many occasions where it doesn't work well is you've got private equity has backed you now working in PE can be quite toxic for some people. They either mm. clean out the whole team and bring in their own management team mm. and just incentivize people to make lots of money and don't really care about developing those people. Mm. Um, they just want success. Mm. But you, you seem to have done well with PE. What's, what's the secret of coping in a PE environment with a private equity investor? Well, th- first of all, you've got to have the right investor. You know, I think we're really lucky. We work with a firm that, that get us and feel like a partner. You know, and um, you know, I, 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 I would describe them as being demanding but reasonable. Yeah. You know, no one minds demanding but reasonable, but demanding and unreasonable, no one, no one's cool with that. Yeah. So, I think there are probably two types of investor, and and I think we we chose the right one. I think the other one is um, you've got to have the right board. You know, you've got to have 
um, a shared vision. Um, and, you know, I mean truly shared. You know, they've got to be able to deal with the rough and the smooth. They've got to be able to deal with the good and the bad. And they've got to be able to um, separate in their minds between the tactical business needs of today and the strategic goals of tomorrow. And if they can't do that, then it doesn't really matter whether you've got peer investment or otherwise, you're pretty pretty screwed, aren't you? Yeah. You know, our, our chairman, Piers Marmion, who's now a friend of mine, um, as well as my chairman, um, said to me in my very first meeting with Wilton the Bain, um, you know, Jeremy and Ben, who, who founded the firm and are still our major shareholders, always, always, always were very clear that they wanted to build a firm that they could sell. Yeah. And that's always been part of the objective, you know, creating wealth. Um, but also sharing it, you know, um, our management buyout was an opportunity for them to take some money off the table, but also share that. So there's always been a very, we've always had a culture of generosity and reciprocity, and I've just been given the mantle, I guess, of carrying that on. But when I was taught to peers about that, and he said, well, you know, what are the motivations? I said, oh, I'd love to be part of something that went through an exit. You know, my dad sold this company, sold many companies. So I'd always been motivated by this, mm. this, this hill that eventually you get to the top of, and then, you know, Come yeah. sit there and join the view. I'm not sure that's not sure that's quite true. But he said, "Look, David, you know that's all fine, but don't really think about building a business of of of, of equity value. Think of building a business of consequential value." I remember thinking, oh, "What the fuck is he on about?" And then about three years ago, I suddenly got it, um, which is that consequential value is building a business that's about other people. It's about mm. building a business that has legacy. It's about building a business that has value that way outlives you as the CEO of that business. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've been, my, the way I've managed the private equity guys, we're in a business that's only about our people. We only have our people. Um, is by um, basically telling them that it's all about some of the parts. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. And, and what I've seen, and certainly in our work on inspiring leadership, one of the components of the eight components is legacy, leaving a legacy. It's not about ownership, it's about stewardship, that you, you're, not, you're looking after it for a period of time and you've got to leave it better than you've found it and you pass it on to others to pick up the mantle. Otherwise, it becomes very destructive and you try and grab as much money as you can and leave wasteland and nothing to pass on. And the other thing I've found is sometimes you get the cult of the leader. Uh, I worked for a, for a commanding officer like this, who it was the big, you know, he was the king and it was the big cult of him. And he laid waste to us as his deputies because he didn't want to be challenged. So, so it was the big individual, no challenge by him. And if you did, you got taken out. But then everybody else below thought he was wonderful. And so I think it's really good that you've got this sense of legacy the other thing that I, I did pick up when I was with you and your firm is you, you had a good point on diversity, which isn't just about gender or race. Do you want to talk a bit about that? I found that was quite Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, um, it, 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 it's probably the hottest topic in, in, in leadership at the moment. And, um, you know, every piece of information I pick up or review I pick up or study I see, um, you know, uh, tends to be about gender or race. You know, t I mean, I'm generalising. Most do. Um, and I, I think we are on a journey as well in the Bay. We have an all-male board. You know, our management team is now um, three-sevenths female, um, you know, mix of race. We run a future leaders programme, which is 60% female. We're all, all going in the right direction, right? We sort of squeeze it from the, from the middle up. But what I really want to build is a business diverse on thinking. 
you know, diverse on gender, diverse on race, but where everyone has a voice. Um, and I, I have always seen myself as someone who, who is approachable. Um, you know, I, I try and have coffees with as many people in the business as I can on a regular basis. That when, when I'm in New York, I, I pretty much run two days of speed dating with the team, which I love. It's not enough Walking time. Walking meetings? Do walking meetings. I do walking meetings. I do most of my things walking. But um, but um, I get some great ideas from the most surprising parts of our organisation. And I'm yet to know what the right mechanism is to really... Um, I mean, if, I, if we're not a GSK or a Diageo, um, but the quiet voice in the room is the one that normally has the most to say. Yeah. Well, just, just holding on that one, it's quite interesting using the uh, Nancy Klein time to think approach. Um, I, I've often got groups where they've just run it their usual way and the same, let's say, in a group of 10 of them on an exec team or a board. The, the same two or three people, normally men, mm-hmm. are talking over each other and largely and too long and not listening. And they don't listen to... Um, to, to really understand, they listen to respond or reload and get their point back in. And then so stop that and then give the time to think where everybody gets their turn mm. and no one can assault the thinking of the other and interrupt. They, they'll each have their minute. And I find that's really powerful because it's always the tends to be the, not always, the quieter, introverted, often female will go, I think my freshest thinking is this is the, the issue. And people go, oh my God. Mm. she's right mm. like well why didn't you listen to her in the first place and well she's not an expert on our bit of banking or whatever it is no but she's got she can think there's no there's no monopoly on thinking everybody can think and, and this is why I do find it refreshing watching you drawing out from different people in your team and your leadership team who I've met some of them what everybody thinks mm. and, and that no as you said no idea is a bad idea mm. and then it's about taking accountability right you know, so so so, if you can create an environment where everyone has an opinion that's valued, and you can create an infrastructure where everyone's empowered, a bit a bit kind of cliched, empowered, but uh, empowered to make decisions and act, then all of a sudden you've got an incredibly um, together environment. You know, you, you you look at go back to rugby, but you go yeah. back to the two. In fact, let's do a classic example of the 2003 World Cup winning team versus the team that just lost the final. Um, The team that just lost the final were on form the best team in the world and they got smashed. The team that won the final in 2003 were the best team in the world and they narrowly beat a very good Australian team. Why did that happen? Martin Johnson, Lawrence Devalier, Neil Batt, Matt Dawson, Will Greenwood, five leaders out of a team of 15. And even the ones that weren't the leaders, Jason Leonard off the bench, Richard Hill, Mike Catt, Jason Robinson. I mean, mm. probably 11 of them went on to captain their country. So a team of leaders. So what happened to this team? Was it, where was One they? leader, Owen was Farrell. Yeah. Too far from the action, getting smashed in the scrum. Owen Farrell can't scrummage. He can't get commands to the forwards. Who's taking control of that pack? Dylan Hartley's gone. Billy Vanapola leads by example, but he's not a leader. He's not a decision maker. Maro Itoji probably is, but did he have a remit? Really interesting. I think if you wind that team forward, because on quality, individual quality, they are sensationally good. Wind that team forward four years, I think they will be absolutely unbeatable. As long as they, and this is our challenge at Wilton Bay, is I want everyone... It's not about chiefs. 
It's about leadership. It's about taking accountability. And and what is lovely, um, all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. Is a quote. And you read a lot. Mm. And you're whenever we meet, there's there's almost a jockeying of Have you read this? And I've listened to this. And I watched. <laughs> you know, have you listened to Netflix? The game changers about vegans. And yeah, I have. And have you met this person? And we we exchange stuff we've learned. And you're. You know, you're a standout person as far as that you're constantly a lifelong learner. And I think that makes a huge difference that you've learned from rugby. You've learned from some great, a great upbringing, just like I had, you know, people like uh, Lord Horton and Lord Dana, who were my bosses and, and Peter Inge for all his, you know, quirks. He did teach me a lot of things. And I've never forgotten those kind of things. You had the same with rugby, which gave you... Mm many different skills which you're using now and and how have you taken you know if you just we haven't got much longer but if you just a few things from rugby that you'd apply into business and you found well uh, well as leadership what would it be well don't they say rugby is a game for all shapes and sizes and um you know i think if you can create a business that's for all different shapes and sizes then you know you're onto something mm. um and that's what, what we've tried to do. I mean, I recognise that the people who do the job that I did 10 years ago will be very different today than how I was 10 years ago. You know, the world is more technology-driven, it's more data-driven, it's more... And we can either go, oh, sod it, you know, the world isn't changing, or embrace that and actually say, do you know what? We need different skills in our business today than the ones we had we had yesterday. And we need different shapes. We need introverts and we need extroverts and we need... Mm. Um, and all of that's great, <laughs> rather than, God, they're a bit different. Yeah. Do they fit our culture? I mean, yeah. do they fit our culture? What does that really mean? Yeah. You know, that's about values. Do they behave in the right way? Do they care about the right kind of things? It's not about the way, whether they're quiet or whether they're loud or, you know. But on values, you and I have talked about this before. Um, one of the big things is, which is common between both what I do in my leadership coaching and speaking and what you do in your executive search and your interim and your talent development, is you have to be a trusted advisor to your clients. Mm. So how do you make sure that they trust you and you're trustworthy, you and your team? What what, what does trust really involve? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I think that um, if, I, if I flip it from sport to the military and then wind that back into, into business, I've never been in the military. I was a terrible um, Tiger platoon. I remember lieutenants at Uppingham Combined Cadet Corps. Terrible because I never turned up actually. But um, even when I did turn up, I was terrible. But what, what, um, what, um, what, everyone in the army knows what everyone's job is, you know, and everyone in sport knows what everyone's job is. You know, the rugby team, the tight head prop pushes, the loose head prop stops the, the scrum going back, the hooker hooks it, the scrum half passes, the fly half. In business, it's less clear. You know, there's much more ambiguity. So I think trust comes from, um, firstly, absolute clarity over what everyone's job is. And only once you've got clarity can you have trust. Because if you don't know what each other's doing, it's hard to trust whether... Mm. You know, so so we're, we're actually in a situation now where we've, we've, we've almost trebled the headcount of our business in 24 months. And that, wow. that, that's created a bit of a... How, how big are you now? Just over 100 people. Wow. I think I put in a, an email, all 102 now from 30-something, or you know, which is amazing, really. But um, And 40 of those people have joined since January this year, so wow. pretty, pretty crazy growth. But 
we're doing a bottom-up, top-down exercise now on reprofiling all of our roles to try and make sure everyone knows what their job is. Mm. And then they know where their career is going and how they progress and how they move. So I'm sort of answering your trust in a, in a slight... But I think it comes from consistency. Mm. And I think it, it, it comes from sometimes just a look that, you know, there are certain people in our business that I know if I ask, if I ask them to do something or they tell me they're going to do something or we agree as a leadership team that their responsibility is to, they will always get it done. And there are other people where it always drifts. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do think if, if you're asked to do something, if you can't do it, say you can't do it, don't lie and say, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, mm. and then not do it. You've got to be relied upon. And, and it does require discipline. And, and discipline is inbuilt in training and development mm. And I mean, even think about now at 57, you know, I got up this morning, I have a morning routine. Wherever I might be in the world, whatever I'm doing, if I can get a few things in, I'll do them. And then I went and had half an hour's training in the gym where a personal trainer beasted all of us in a hit training session. But I feel fantastic now. But that discipline, I could have stayed in bed and got, you know, tired. But actually, no, get up, get out of bed. One, two, three, go. Yeah. And I think that discipline does mean that you trust yourself. You can look in the mirror and go, would I, would I, would I be led by me? Because mm. if you go, well, I wouldn't really, because I'm not really reliable, then why would anybody else be led by you? Um, in our last minute or so, uh, what would be a couple of tips that you'd pass on to others from, from your experience as being a group CEO now? Um, but just at any level of leadership, because people at all levels, from chairman to CEOs, down to aspiring leaders and CEOs themselves. What would be your final couple of tips? So, so I, I think be be decent to people. Mm -hmm. Be humble. You know, know that you've got stuff to learn. Um, and be decisive. You know, I mean, basically, life is a series of decisions and judgment calls, and it's not really about. Um, making the wrong or the right decision it's about the order you make those decisions so in our business we absolutely know where we're going over the next three years and there are a number of decisions we'll have to take it's not the decisions we take it's when we take them in what order so i think being very clear on the order of events is mm. actually quite important mm. and bringing people with you just communicate mm. i think sometimes we communicate too much i mean social media is rammed down our throat every day you know we're doing some now but the the i i think the millennials expect more. There's more. There's more of a sense that they feel they need to be kept in the loop on everything. That's really difficult. Yeah. It's really difficult, um, particularly for people who come from Middle England like me, where you know sharing isn't sharing isn't something that all you know. It's not something you're taught to do at yeah. a young age. I mean, I do it naturally, but a lot of a lot of people don't. No, very good, very good, David. Yeah. David Heron, Group CEO of Wilson Bain. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jonathan. It's really I've loved the banter. I've uh, admired what you're achieving and, and the way you lead. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Sean. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, 
get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.